Radio. This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. For nearly a year now, I've had the privilege of living and working in Grand Canyon National Park. And while resident here, I've developed a great admiration for the California condor and the Mexican spotted owl. Regarded as one of the rarest birds in the world, the California condor is the largest land bird in North America with a wingspan of up to nine and a half feet and a weight of up to 23 pounds. At one point, only 22 of these magnificent creatures remained in the world. Now, through Herculean efforts in reintroduction, there are more than 400, and more than 70 of these are flying over southern Utah and northern Arizona. Each time they are seen soaring over the Grand Canyon, folks point and cheer. The Mexican spotted owl is also an endangered bird, with a little more than 2,000 remaining in the United States. This 16 to 19 inch tall, under 2 pound creature, with a wingspan of 42 to 45 inches, is also found in the canyon, and is also the subject of study and recovery efforts. In this episode of On the Road with Mac and Molly, we'll hear from Janice Stroud Settles, a wildlife biologist at Grand Canyon National Park about these fascinating birds and the efforts expended in bringing them back from the brink of extinction. Janice will join us when we return from these commercial messages. So please sit, stay. We'll be right back after this pause. Sit, stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, Stitcher, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Pet Life Radio's On the Road with Mac and Molly. This is your host, Donna Haleson. And joining us now from her office at Grand Canyon National Park is wildlife biologist Janice Stroud Settles. Hi, Janice. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. Hi, no problem. I was introduced to Janice when I started as a volunteer monitoring condors at the canyon, and I describe her as a darling girl with a great passion for the wildlife in her care. So, again, just uh, very glad that you're able to be with us today. Well, I thought we might begin our conversation with the who, what, when, why, and how of you as a wildlife biologist. What kind of work does a wildlife biologist do, and where might they be found doing that work? Oh, a wildlife biologist can be doing work anywhere around the world, whether, you know, it's in a national park, a remote national park like Grand Canyon, or even in the middle of a city. I mean, there's wildlife issues 
everywhere. You, you think about, say, a city center, say, let's, for example, say Phoenix. There's definitely a wildlife issue, say, at the airport. You have um, issues with birds coming in to that area and possibly having collisions with the aircraft. So there's wildlife biologists to help um, mitigate those problems or whether it's coyotes in the middle of town. I've seen them in Phoenix. It happens. So there's definitely wildlife people in cities. And in Grand Canyon here, like more of our issues that we're dealing with is um, protecting our natural resources and conserving them for future use. Um, and for visitor enjoyment. So I deal with a lot with the threatened and endangered species here in the park. Um, the, the, working for the Park Service, it is part of the federal government, and the federal government is required under the Endangered Species Act to contribute to the recovery of endangered species. So that's kind of what I've been doing here. Why for you wildlife biology? What led you into the profession? Oh, that's a good question. You know, it didn't really come to me at an early age, I'd say. It took me a little while to figure it out exactly what I wanted to do with my life. I've always had an interest in the outdoors, and I eventually figured out that I wanted a career that would enable me to work in the outdoors at some level. You know, I've always been fascinated by wildlife, and when you think about it, you know, there's so much diversity and so much that is still really unknown regarding wildlife throughout the world. And for a scientist, that's really tantalizing. It's really, really interesting to know that. But, you know, what I really think it boils down to for me is that I've always had the conviction that humans share this planet, I mean, you know, with other animals. There's a large, huge diversity of wildlife in the world. And uh, we really shouldn't separate ourselves from that natural world. So I think choosing this career, it really gives me that opportunity to better understand our natural world, and therefore it allows me to contribute to conserving and protecting it. And it's not really a bad deal in my mind. I get to live and work in some pretty cool places. That's for sure. <laughs> well, were you raised in an environment that would have sparked that interest? Were you Are you from a family of outdoor enthusiasts, let's say? You know, my, my parents, when I was younger... We used to go camping a lot and we'd go hiking. That didn't last, you know, well into my childhood. It really ended at a young age, but I always was passionate about it. I kind of felt like I was a black sheep in my family because most people in my family aren't really outdoorsy people. They like the outdoors, but they don't do it at the level I do. So really, it's I can't say it's really um, my parents that edged me into this career choice. It was sort of, and that's probably why it took me so long to figure it out because I, I really didn't have that strong background, you know, as a child. But the passion was always there. The interest was always there. And I was fortunate enough to grow up in a more of a rural setting in Pennsylvania, in the Pocono mountains and I lived right next to a national park so I think that also helped me figure things out of what I was passionate about being you know brought up and always playing outside every day in the woods with my sister and just always exploring. Well, what was the path that you took to uh, where you are today and what kind of training did you receive and maybe you can tell us about some of the positions that you had before you came to the canyon. Sure it's kind of an interesting start because uh, when I when I finished high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do, of course. I was a competitive swimmer, and this is going somewhere, believe it or not. I was a competitive swimmer in high school, and that led me to lifeguarding. And the park that I grew up next to was the Delaware Water Gap, and they needed lifeguards on the riverfront. They had, you know, a lot of beaches, and they needed lifeguards, and, well, I got a job with the park service there. And that kind of got me introduced into the park and how that whole operation works. 
when I went to college, I knew I wanted to study biology, and I had these grandiose ideas that, oh, I'm going to be a medical doctor, and that's, that's going to be my goal in life. And after my first chemistry class, I soon realized that that was not going to happen. I did not like chemistry one bit. <laughs> so I started exploring around with different fields within the biology field, um, and I, I studied environmental studies on top of that. And that's what really triggered my interest um, in this line of work was those classes in environmental studies. So I got my biology degree and still having worked the summers for the Park Service as a lifeguard, I was encouraged by the rangers at the Delaware Water Gap that I should apply for some jobs within the park that are biology related. So I did. I put my applications out there to several parks and lo and behold, I got a call from Grand Canyon National Park offering me a job on their vegetation program. And it was a seasonal position, so that was just a six-month-long position. And I, being a girl from Pennsylvania, had never traveled west from Pittsburgh. And I accepted the job, and I, within a week, was traveling to Arizona to start this new job with the park. And that opened up many doors, taking that position and just putting that first step forward. I learned so many things about the different positions that can be held within the park. That was my first exposure to you know, the wildlife positions. Even though I was working on a vegetation project, I got to volunteer on wildlife projects, including some bighorn sheep and condor work that was going on, and that was 14 years ago. So from there, I knew I wanted to really focus on wildlife, and I took an internship after Grand Canyon in Alabama, on the coastal part of Alabama, and I did work with sea turtles and osprey. And that really got my foot in the door much, much more solidly in the wildlife field. I understood kind of more the details of the positions and, you know, what was required of you as a biologist. My next big move, and this is what probably really solidified my career, was my positions in Yellowstone National Park. So I moved from Alabama, went up to Yellowstone National Park, spent about three and a half years there, and I got to work on wonderful projects there that were amazing. I will never forget them. I, my first project I worked on was with Canadian lynx, and we were looking for the presence of them in the park. They weren't sure they even lived there. So I got to hike all over the remote backcountry of Yellowstone, putting up hair snares um, to try to get some lynx scratching up against them and get their fur samples. Uh, I also worked on the Yellowstone Wolf Project. Uh, wolves were pretty newly reintroduced there at that point in time, so I got to monitor a lot with their behavior and their survival and just how they were doing with the reintroduction program. And I also got to work, let's see here, on the, on the um, bear project there. And the bear project was really, it's equivalent to people management, you know, trying to prevent people from doing things that they shouldn't be doing in bear country, essentially, whether it's leaving out food at their campsite or them getting too close to bears along the road. Other projects I worked on there were the bison project. There's a lot of controversy uh, with bison in Yellowstone National Park with the disease issue. So I, I got good exposure between like working with you know endangered species with, with wolves and bears, and also with then bison with the disease issue. So I got a really wide range of experience with what the whole wildlife field can encompass, which was wonderful. And from there, I went to grad school. I knew this is what I wanted to do. I knew that in order to survive in this career, you needed an upper-level education, a graduate degree. So I went and pursued my master's degree and did research on white-tailed deer in Michigan. 
And that lasted about three years. Learned a lot about the nitty-gritty of the science part of wildlife. And from there, I moved back out to Arizona and worked for Arizona Game and Fish Department. So that's the state wildlife agency here. And that was also another valuable experience as a wildlife biologist to work for a state agency and states are uh, the managers of wildlife. It's really good to see their perspective on how they manage wildlife within the boundaries of the state. And from there, I came back to Grand Canyon where I started, <laughs> only this time with a wildlife biology job. So that's my long story. Wow. Wow. What a history. Well, yeah. can you tell us, maybe give us a word here. <laughs> can you give us a, a word picture of the canyon and its wildlife? Now that you're back here, tell us a little bit about what the canyon is like, maybe uh, geologically or, um, and just share a little bit about the wildlife that's here. Oh, there's a great diversity of wildlife here just because of the elevational change in the canyon. So like where I live in Grand Canyon, where my house is, it's in um, a ponderosa pine forest canyon and juniper trees are around and you know it's what you think of a typical southwest forest so you get those you know get elk you get deer squirrels rabbits um various bird species but of course the canyon itself this is a huge you know the geographic layers are extensive it goes all the way down to you know it's a 5,000 feet elevational change to the river so each way along the way you get these different zones life zones that support different wildlife species so you're going to get a huge diversity of wildlife, you know, within all groups of wildlife, whether it's mammals or you know, uh, reptiles or the avifauna. I mean, the avifauna community here is amazing. We have over 350 species of birds here in Grand Canyon National Park. That is a huge amount of birds in one location. A lot of people, you know, when they think of parks, they think of these huge areas that, you know, the wildlife stays within the park. And Grand Canyon is not really like that. It's a very long park and narrow. So a lot of the animals use the park, but they also use the areas outside the park. And that's really something to consider when I'm doing my work because there are potential impacts and influences from outside the park that affect the wildlife within the park. Now, there are native species and there are also species that would have been wiped out of the canyon and have been reintroduced. Can you delineate some of that for us? Oh, well, the best example is California condors. And I mean, they are the prime example of a species that once thrived here for thousands and thousands of years. And then due to human influence, came to near extinction back in the 1980s. And, you know, through a reintroduction project starting in 1996, they were reintroduced back into the Grand Canyon region and are back and they're faring fairly well, though they still have a lot of struggles before we can actually say it's good. Okay, so, so what do you love about your work? What have been and what are some of your greatest challenges that you have today? Oh, well, I like the variety in my work. Not, you know, not every day is the same as the next. As I said, like kind of describing my experiences in Yellowstone, I mean, you are thrown many different things all in one day. I can give you an example of what I've been dealing with lately. It's, you know, it's top of the tourist season here in Grand Canyon. So we're dealing a lot with wildlife emergencies and that's being, whether it's 
bats, getting caught in buildings, having to go and get them out, or whether it's elk or deer getting hit by cars and having to deal with that whole situation. We also have a bobcat kitten along one of our most popular trails in the canyon, and it is not afraid of people. So we're trying to teach the cat that it should be afraid of people. We also have condors that are, for some reason, hanging out at this observation site, and again, not afraid of people where you know they need to be afraid of people because not everyone likes condors in the world. <laughs> On top of that, I'm trying to you know run a, a crew, a seasonal crew that helps me do surveys for Mexican spotted owls. They also help monitor the condors. And I'm trying to find funding for future projects because we are like most programs here in Grand Canyon for the sciences, we aren't 100% funded under federal funds. So we're required to find our own soft funding. So I'm trying to write proposals to help get new projects started, both on bats. That's one of the things I really would like to see this park study more of is bats. Since we have a huge diversity of bats, very similar to the birds here, a lot of different different species of bats. I'm also trying to continue Hawkwatch International coming here every year. Hawkwatch International is a, a nonprofit organization that comes every fall, and they do migration counts of the hawks that come migrating through right through the Grand Canyon. And honestly, for like a couple months of them counting, they can count over 10,000 hawks coming through the canyon. So that's an amazing project. It's a long term. It's been going on close to 20 years. So it's a great data set. But I need to find funding to help them, you know, support their project so they can continue it. So it's a large part of my job is just keeping the pieces going as well as trying to find new ways to start new projects. Another big thing that we've been doing in the park, and this is more than just me, this is a huge project that includes external agencies, is what is known as the Greater Grand Canyon Landscape Assessment. Um, and this is a huge undertaking by the park to really gather as much information on all these environmental conditions that influence the park and to try to get understanding of where we are environmentally, like how healthy is the park? What do we need to study more of to understand the health of the park and what threats are facing the park? So I'm kind of involved with dealing with the threatened and endangered species part of this assessment. So I'm providing a condition assessment for Mexican spotted owls, which are good indicators of, you know, say, you know, is climate change possibly affecting them or is a forest fire possibly affecting them? So all these different impacts that, you know, can result in the behavior or the populations of wildlife. I'm trying to help the park plan out that in this assessment. So a little bit of everything, really. Well, with this enormous, the enormous breadth of the work, is there, there must be a team, I would assume, with whom you work? Yes, Grand Canyon for sure. Grand Canyon is such a huge park and we get so much visitation that it really requires a team. Right now, we have four more long-term employees for wildlife and then we also have about three to four seasonal employees. And it, this, pro- this program needs to be a lot larger. Again, you know, funding being at as, as it is nowadays, we're a little smaller than what we used to be, but we still get a lot of work done. The team, everyone has their expertise. So, for example, there is a biologist here who deals a lot with more of the larger mammals. So he's dealing with the bighorn sheep as well as the mountain lions and the non-native bison that are on the North Rim. 
And we also have a biologist here who deals with more of the pest animals. So when you think of pests, you know, a lot of people think of mice, which that's definitely a pest. So dealing with mice, it's also different with different insects and what you can and cannot do in the park with insects. So poisons are generally not allowed or insecticides are not allowed in parks. Only certain types are that are environmentally friendly. So it's not as simple as just like trying to control and get rid of these animals. It's like, how do you manage for these animals so they don't become a problem? So that's his position. And he also deals a lot with the fires. This is a huge fire management park. You know, we fire is a natural part of the ecosystem. So he also helps when there is a fire. He will help with the compliance work that's required. So he'll say, well, this area really shouldn't be burned because it's critical habitat for this animal or, you know, give advice as a biologist of what should and should not happen if a fire, there is a wildfire in the park. Let's see here. And we also have, I have a, under me, I do have a um, Mexican spotted owl crew lead. Um, and that's really required in this park because working in Grand Canyon National Park is extremely difficult logistically. Getting into the canyon takes a lot of time and effort to figure out how you're going to get to some of these really remote backcountry canyons. Sometimes it takes multiple days to get to one location just to do one survey. So it's really logistically challenging. It's physically challenging as well. So I'm lucky to have a technician who is really good at dealing with this and understanding how to get crews back into these areas. So yeah, it definitely takes a team of us to help uh, you know, study the, the wildlife in this park for sure. I'd like to back up to something that you said. You mentioned the bobcat kitten that's been down on Bright Angel and, yeah. uh, and condors as well may sometimes be too friendly. How do you deal with those situations? Oh, well, it's constantly problem solving. Like, honestly, I feel like, especially this summer, that people come into my office or I get phone calls and it's this new problem. We have a bobcat kitten on the trail. How do you solve this problem? You, you don't get trained in how to solve this problem in school. I'll tell you that. <laughs> and I'm not like none of us here in the, in the wildlife staff has ever had a problem with a bobcat kitten before. <laughs> so we're all like, well, let's see. Let's, let's work through this piece by piece. Okay, number one, there is a bobcat kitten along the trail. It is not afraid of people. It, you know, it walks right past people with the wants across the trail. It's not even phased by people. We see that as a problem because obviously the animal is going to get bigger. We don't want an adult bobcat comfortable around people. That can just cause a lot of problems in the future. You know, bobcats can be aggressive. They have the ability to defend themselves, especially when they're older. So we don't want that problem in the future. So unfortunately, we have to come up with solutions to kind of prevent that from happening. But also, since the cat is so small, it's a kitten, we don't want to push it too far where it's going to not survive in the wild without the resources it's used to, whether it be the water or food. So it's this fine balance of trying to basically train that cat to act wild, but not to push it away from where it's used to. So we've taken the approach of heading down in the canyon every day, and we bring, this is kind of funny, a lot of people get a kick out of this, but we bring water guns and an air horn, and we attempt to scare the cat anytime it comes close to people on the trail. So hopefully you can start associating people with bad things happening to it. And it sounds horrific that, you know, we're having to haze a small kitten. I mean, 
this animal is really small. It's the size of a football. It's probably only about five weeks old. But, you know, we tell the visiting public when they see us doing this and they're horrified. We're like, this is the better for the cat. We want it to stay wild. We don't want it, you know, to run into problems in the future. And once we explain ourselves, most people are really understanding and they will be supportive um, and will even assist steering the cat if need be. Condors are the same way. I mean, condors... Oh, ever since their reintroduction back in 1996, we've had problems almost every single year of them, you know, getting too close and comfort comfortable around people. And the main reason is, again, Grand Canyon, busy park. It gets crowds of people at, at certain viewpoints. And condors are attracted to that activity because they hone in on any kind of activity. That's how they find their, the carcasses that they feed on. You know, they see other ravens or vultures being active around a carcass, they go right in and check it out. So people, seeing people activity is very similar and they go and check it out and sometimes they end up hanging out at these places because there's good perching spots and we don't want them comfortable around people. Even though it's really cool to see them up close, you know, once they leave the park, they don't have that protection that they have in the park and if they get close to people, especially a person who may not like condors or doesn't know what they are, they might end up dead. We have had that happen in the past where um, condors have gotten shot once they have left the park because, well, who knows, someone's joy shooting animals or or maybe they just didn't like a condor. Um, but it happens. So we'd rather have condors keep a good, safe distance from humans. Well, another recent concern that got some press attention actually was related to a couple of bats. And I wonder how that came to your attention, why you were especially concerned about these two bats. Oh, yes. Yeah, so I have... A good friend who is a backcountry ranger in the park. So she's often stationed at Indian Gardens, which is like uh, six miles down into the canyon. And she's also at Phantom Ranch, which is at the bottom of the canyon. And she's always out about looking at things, looking at wildlife. And she notices things all the time. And she shares with me. And this past, I'd say maybe six weeks ago, she started sending me emails saying, hey, I'm noticing, noticing bats that aren't really looking too healthy and they're kind of acting weird. And should that be a concern? And I'm like, oh, of course it's a concern. You know, that's, that's, that's not good, especially if you're seeing them during the day or they're crawling on the ground, which she was. And I think it was a week after that email, she finally saw a bat along the trail and it was not moving, it wasn't flying away from when she approached it. And it was acting very ill, did not look good at all. She went back two days later and the bat was dead in the same spot. And she was smart enough to collect that bat using appropriate gloves and whatnot and being very careful because she knew there might be disease involved and she was able to get that bat to me. I submitted it for disease testing and it came back positive for rabies. Two days later, the same thing happened out um, at Desert View, which is 30 miles from the South Rim Village here. We had a visitor with bat randomly landing on her. Luckily, this visitor stayed very calm. Most people don't stay calm about when a bat actually lands on them, but this woman handled it very well. She stayed calm. She didn't try to you know, slap at the bat, and she just let it there until a ranger came and was able to remove the bat and collect that bat which unfortunately I had to euthanize just because there was that human contact and that bat did end up having rabies. So it all happened very quickly within a couple of days that we determined that, yes, rabies is a little bit more prevalent this year than it has in previous years. 
rabies is always present. I want folks to know that rabies is always present um, in the environment. It's just, it's very cyclic. So it, it, right now it's on the upswing where there's more of it. Guarantee next year it'll probably be on the downswing where you won't see it as much. So it's just being careful of, you know, and being very observant about the wildlife around you. And if there's anything weird um, behavior-wise with the animals, it's good to know and to report that to any wildlife officials. Well, what kinds of behavior uh, in a wild animal should alert a person to something being amiss? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, specifically, I say for bats. I mean, bats, a lot of people think rabies with bats. Bats, if they are out in the daytime, that's weird behavior. They should be night only. Also, if they're crawling on the ground, bats don't crawl on the ground generally. So if you see them crawling on the ground or just sitting on the ground, that's a worry for concern. There's something wrong with them. Also, if they're landing on people, that's really abnormal bat behavior for them to land on a person. They usually avoid people at all costs. So, and for other animals, it's very similar. If they're outside what they normally would be doing, for example, if you see a bobcat or a coyote or a fox in the middle of the day, like in, in the village or something like that, that would be cause for concern, especially if it's not scared of people or if it looks sickly. A lot of uh, larger mammals will show signs of the drooling that you, that's classic of rabies or the snarling of the teeth. So just being very observant of wildlife, and even if the animal might not have the exact symptoms of rabies, still reporting that to somebody who knows better is the best thing to do. Just switching gears a little bit here, I know that pets are allowed, dogs are allowed, I should say, along the rim and in the national park here. And wonder if you might just speak a little bit about the restrictions that are in place for their protection and for the protection of wildlife. Well, that's a great question because as a wildlife biologist, this is one of the big things we have to deal with is is pets. I'm a pet owner. I have two dogs. So I'm definitely not an anti-pet person, but there is definitely responsibility on the owner's part. Here in the park, luckily, each park is different in how they regulate pets, which really is a great thing because it shows that the park service recognizes that there's different environments for each park, hence they need different regulations for pets. So that's really a positive thing on the park service park. For Grand Canyon National Park, pets are allowed above the rim of the canyon. So there's plenty of trails um, that you can like walk your dog on, of course, on leash, because you don't want animals to be or pets to be chasing animals. They're not allowed in the canyon. Um, and that's mostly due to environmental concerns. It's an extreme environment that would be really hard on pets. Um, it's hard on people. So you can only imagine how hard on pets it would be. We do have a village here at the Southern Village. There's about 3,000 people who live here, and many, many people have pets, dogs and cats and birds and fish, you name it, people have it. The policy on pets is they have to be contained at all times. So your dogs have to be either in a fenced yard or on leash, and that same, same thing goes for cats. And I think a lot of people have a problem with cats not being able to run free and outside, but that is a huge concern, you know, if you're in the park or even outside the park. And I think there's been a lot of attempts to educate the public on the problem of free roaming cats outside. They can be very detrimental to wildlife populations. Even if your cat is the most well-fed cat, it has a bell on, it has it's declawed, the animal has the instinct to want to, you know, kill wildlife, whether it's birds or lizards or rodents. It's just part of how a cat is. And that's 
that's fine as long as they're inside. Here in Grand Canyon National Park, we actively trap for free-ranging domestic cats. And I know this sounds probably horrible. It sounds like we're probably, oh, those wildlife folks, they're just cat haters. And it's really not. It's, it's really part of our job to be able to protect those wildlife populations. And at the same time, we're also really ultimately trying to protect the domesticated cat. A common facts with this, domesticated cat who is kept inside for its life will live 17 or more years, whereas a cat that's allowed to roam free outside has an average lifespan of five years. So really, as a cat owner, it's really, really best to keep your cat inside. If you really feel like, oh, it's not fair, the cat should have some fresh air to go outside, I'm in total agreement. My parents have a cat, and they feel the same way, and what they do is they have a leash on their deck and they put the cat on the leash and the cat has full range of the deck, but it doesn't leave the deck. They also give it walks around the yard, which it loves. <laughs> so it seems silly. A lot of people don't think of, oh, walking my cat. But, you know, my, my parents' cats, they are happy as can be. Well, and here at the canyon, we have our two old English sheepdogs, Mac and Molly. And, you know, I would say that we always, always keep them on a leash if we're taking them out for to relieve themselves, you know, for a walk. Yeah, we yeah. Uh, also, if we yeah, are yeah. out at night and we hear coyotes in one direction, we will head in the opposite direction. It's interesting that the, the both Mac and Molly, they really just don't pay any mind at all to mule deer. They just could care less. And <laughs> And I think the same thing is true of the elk. But but again, we're also very careful to give a respectful distance. Yeah, to keep that's, that's a respectful wonderful. distance between yeah, us and the wildlife wonderful. that's out there. You know, which I just think you learn when you're living in a place that is wild, you learn to respect your fellow residents and uh, and not to take chances that would endanger them or, or endanger, you know, yourself or or your pets. So it's uh, you know, it's it's a one wonderful blessing to be able to live here in the canyon and you know just have to be sensible about how you do that well you know what let's take a break so please folks sit stay we'll be right back after this pause sit stay we'll be right back after a short pause molly here's your dinner (coughs) zeus that's not your food Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's Talk Pets. Let's Talk Pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Pet Life Radio's On the Road with Mac and Molly. I'm your host, Donna Haleson, and with us today is Janice Stroud-Settles, wildlife biologist at Grand Canyon National Park. 
In the news of late has been a viral internet video that shows a man kicking a squirrel off what appears to be the edge of the Grand Canyon. The clip posted on YouTube shows a shirtless, barefoot man in shorts and a straw cowboy hat leaving a trail of food at the edge of a canyon. And he then puts on one of his shoes and kicks the squirrel into the air while another similarly dressed man looks on. I'm wondering if you have heard any further developments on this, you know, since this news broke and and wondering also what penalties are in place for those who mistreat wildlife in the national parks. I have not heard any further development um, from our law enforcement officers here. I know they are working very hard to investigate this because this is one of those incidences that the park does not tolerate. They have no toleration for animal cruelty in the park. And with this video, it clearly shows that there's animal cruelty, the animal being led up to the edge of the canyon and then kicked off. I am sure, since I haven't heard anything, that they probably still have not found the individuals, but I assume that you know, our law enforcement will work on it for a year plus to come if need be. I think if these people were caught, I think they are can be charged up to, I believe it's $2,000 fine and then up to five years in prison. So a pretty hefty crime, you know, committed essentially in the park. And, and the park definitely wants to make a statement. And I think it has been made since it's been in the, in the press a lot that we do not tolerate such activity in the park. Have you heard of similar incidents in the past? You know, not like this where it's been posted on video. You know, I assume it has happened in the past, but to have it posted on YouTube, you know, through video, that's a whole nother crime in itself that they're actually bragging about what they've done. You know, you hear stories about people getting in trouble with the squirrels here because the squirrels have a tendency to be a bit aggressive. People mistakenly feed them, which they should not. And they, you know, they get used to food and they'll come and they beg from people. People get accidentally bit by them. And suddenly people who don't even want to do anything with the squirrels at all, they'll be approached by squirrels and, you know, people have gotten climbed upon by squirrels and they'll kick them off and you know but nothing to this extent that I've, I've seen since I've been here I'm actually having somebody post a video like this not such just outright horrible cruelty I thought it was just uh, it just disgusts me well you know I, I was chatting with one of the park rangers the other day and she mentioned that she had been trained in hazing animals that are too comfortable around human beings especially condors and the bobcat kitten that we mentioned earlier on can you delineate for us the difference between the hazing that is practiced by wildlife professionals and why, when, and where it is done. Hazing is done to help the animals, whereas, you know, this other incident, it was not obviously helping that squirrel at all. Hazing is basically to make animals fearful of humans, so they stay away from them. So essentially, it helps us with our safety in the long run. And all the techniques we use, it does not physically harm the animals. At most, it scares them, so it's very temporary. I think the harshest thing we do here in Grand Canyon is use paintballs on elk. And even that, that's just like, you know someone punching you in the arm really hard and that's about it but you know I don't think sometimes that they don't even seem phased by the paintballs hitting them so it obviously doesn't hurt too much in like with the bobcat kitten like the harshest we've given it is the water gun and you know water is not going to hurt anything but cats don't like water so you know you got to apply what animals don't like and with condors condors can be tricky they learn fast like 
things that, that don't hurt them. For example, we have used water guns and shot water at them. You would think most condors don't like that, but we have had condors figure out that, hey, it's not that bad. I can deal with this. Or if I stand this far away, I know that gun, that water gun's not going to be able to reach me. So we always have to vary it up with condors, whether it's a loud noise or the water gun. And the harshest I think we get with them here is using a slingshot with grapes. So grapes, Obviously, you're just going to splatter on the animal. They're not going to actually hurt them. But it usually gives them a good good shock of like, what was that? Where'd that come from? <laughs> Enough to scare them and to realize that, you know, I don't like hanging around humans because these weird things happen. Well, and the whole point is to protect both humans and the animals, which uh, is a sharp distinction that you're making here between what this man did with a squirrel on the edge of the canyon and what wildlife biologists are attempting to do with the hazing that they may sometimes practice. Well, you know, as I was preparing to uh, enter college, I was one who gave serious consideration to becoming a wildlife biologist. I have always, though my life took a different tack, I've always maintained my my love for wildlife and wild places. And, and today there may be someone listening who would love to pursue wildlife biology as a career. And uh, do you have any advice for maybe some of the best steps that they might take to enter into the field? Yeah, if, if someone's thinking about a career in wildlife biology, my first advice would be to really test the waters. A lot of people think of this job and they get dreamy about it. They don't really understand what it is on a daily basis. So I would advise them to really do some work, volunteer work in order to really see what it's really about to see if they really do want to pursue this seriously. And if it ends up where after volunteering a little bit on some projects, they do want to, you know, that's when you have to consider, you know, being able to get the correct education. Bachelor's degree really is a must nowadays. Master's degree is becoming even more so than um, a bachelor's degree. It's getting more competitive every day in this field because I think we're getting more and more people interested in it. So education, you know, you'd be studying biology or or environmental sciences or zoology. Those are generally the three main um, kind of classes you'd be taking. And on top of just the education, though, it's really, really um, important to get the hands-on experience because you only learn so much in a classroom. And myself, I feel like I have learned most of what I need to know for a wildlife biologist as doing the hands-on work in my jobs or all the volunteer work I've done. And I get contacted quite a bit by younger people nowadays who are interested in this type of work and they ask, oh, what can I do to, you know, get my foot in the door? And I say, start early on volunteering. If you're in college and you're, even though you're taking classes and busy, you need to be able to put time and volunteer with either a, a state wildlife agency or um, a nonprofit or park service or whatever you can get into. Even a zoo, it would be a great experience just to help start building that resume because once you graduate, it is very competitive, even for volunteer positions. I have several volunteers here now, and when they apply to the positions I had, there was over 50 applicants just for one volunteer position. And that's making $15 a day just to cover their per diem. So it's not, they're not making much money at all, but it's still very competitive for volunteer work. So starting early on when you're in college, start getting that experience, and then carrying that out and past college, you might have to volunteer for a year to two years. I 
volunteered for a year and a half total before I actually started getting a paid position for wildlife work. So you have to understand that there is a financial obligation that you have to kind of put yourself out there, live really simply in order to get your foot in the door. And then it will eventually become easier once you get that experience. It's just you have to be willing to do that. What kinds of things can volunteers do with you, let's say, if they get one of those highly prized positions at the Grand Canyon? Well, one of my volunteers now, he mostly deals with the condor monitoring program. So he goes out every day. He tracks the condors. He does a lot of hazing, especially this summer. Typically, we have nests to watch. So he would be doing behavioral monitoring of that nest to see how the chick was doing, educating the public, being able to communicate what you're doing to the public as as well as, you know, explaining the whole history of condors. And it could be very challenging to explain this because in Grand Canyon here, we have many people who come from all over the country. So being able to explain it to people around the world who don't necessarily speak the same language to explain the problems at hand with the population, which can be very controversial. So he's learning a little bit of that, not only the biology side, but also the, the human aspect of it. And then I have him working on various other projects, including our Mexican Spotted Owl project and going in the canyon and, and doing surveys and doing some amphibian surveys and habitat surveys and a little bit of everything. He came to me and he knew that it's hard to get in this field and came to me the first day and he said, I know I've been hired to do the condo work, but I want experience in anything. I'll work my weekends. I just want the experience. So that's what you need to do. And he knew it. I have to tell him to take a day off here and there, that's for sure, because he just wants to work and get that experience. But yeah, he he's also helped with some of our bison work that we've had on North Rim and helping with the whole population monitoring over there. And you name it, he's had a little bit of experience with it. You and I met when I volunteered for an unpaid or for unpaid work as a condor monitor, and I had just the most delightful experience, I believe, working with this individual that you're mentioning. And he introduced me to the work, getting out there with a telemetry device and looking through the scope. And I'll I will never forget the thrill that I had when I saw a beautiful, beautiful condor sitting out on the battleship preening and stretching her wings and just taking in the sun and then launching into the sky and uh, what a just what a delightful delightful experience that I'll always remember so uh, I'm sure that there are folks out there who would uh, appreciate as I have that just that treat I you know I wonder if you might share maybe a little bit about some of the challenges the unexpected challenges that folks might face in trying to move forward in a career in wildlife biology. You've uh, talked about the the great uh, competition there is for for the positions, but I wonder maybe what unexpected kinds of challenges might there be as well. Gosh, I'm trying to think back on like my steps to getting to where I was. And besides being complete, very, very competitive and having to prove yourself, I think I was a bit at a disadvantage just because I am a female. Um, and I know that's hard to say from, you know, being that it's 2014 and there's still this issue of women getting into these certain lines of work that are not as common for women, not historically at least. And I think I you know, started this 14 years ago 
And then it was even more prevalent. I did run into the good old boy networks of, you know, you know, you're a woman, you, you don't know this. And I had a doubly hard time when I was in graduate school. I was studying white-tailed deer in very rural Michigan. And the people that I was doing the work for, they were shocked that I actually got this graduate school research position because I was female and I didn't hunt. And they just didn't understand how I got, could get something like this. How can I know anything about deer or wildlife if I, I don't hunt? <laughs> so it was a challenge to try to, you know, make them see, you know, this is why, this is my experience. And if I had to give advice to young women nowadays is really don't be intimidated by it. It's out there. It exists. There are still a lot of agencies that have the good old boy mentality. You know, a lot of, it's unfortunate, but it's going to be how it is um, for a while. And just to... I just don't be intimidated. Voice your opinions loudly and strongly and be friendly, but don't be a pushover. That's the best advice I can give to young women in this, in this line of work. And just eventually you'll prove yourself and things will work itself out. What do you think of uh, voluntourism? Voluntourism. I think that is a wonderful thing. You know, my husband and I were looking into going to Africa, actually, um, for a little while. Not going to happen this year, but hopefully in the future. And one of the things we looked into was, hey, what kind of volunteer work can we do over there? You know, because I feel like as a wildlife biologist, I have a lot to offer. And I know there's a lot of developing programs in Africa. I'm like, oh, I can totally help on them. And I think that's a wonderful idea. I think people do need to realize that some of them are not free, that you actually are paying people to volunteer for them, but usually those are the projects that are really interesting that with, with these really interesting megafauna, especially. I do think it's a wonderful opportunity if you're interested in wildlife and wildlife biology, but maybe not even make, want to make a career out of it, but you know, on your own time and your own recreational time to be doing this, I think that is a wonderful we had initially thought that we would be doing just one program on your life as a wildlife biologist, but it's been just so much fun and there's been so much to discuss that we're actually going to do a second program. And in that, we'll focus on your work with California condors and Mexican spotted owls. But I wonder as we wrap up this first part of the program, uh, this two-parter, Janice, if there's anything else that you want to be certain to mention before we close out our time together. No, I appreciate the opportunity to discuss all my experiences and to really describe, you know, my everyday life as a wildlife biologist. I really do appreciate it. It's been great. (laughs) Well, it's been great having you and uh, just so appreciate the work that you're doing to aid the wildlife in Grand Canyon National Park. And, And if folks have any questions or comments about today's show, I would invite you to email me at the address that you'll find in my On the Road with Mac and Molly blog. And as always, I hope you'll join us next time as we head out on the road with Mac and Molly. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.